have been enrolled through healthcare.gov at some delay, I would, I would add. Okay, and, and one last question. Um, early on in all this, there was an expected savings that, uh, my terminology, was supposed to come back to the state, you know, as far as, like, from the uh, RSPMIs for the episode of care and everything. Have you all uh, started developing any trends, or has there been actually any savings back to the state through that, or can you speak to that subject? Yes, yeah, so I mean, the budget that you passed last year that uh, is in the executive recommendation and the legislative recommendations, I believe, for this year, this coming year, um, includes those savings, uh, reductions in uncompensated care to a number of entities, the community mental health centers, community health centers, UAMS, the health department, uh, corrections. So that's those right now are baked into the budget, those savings. That's the uncompensated care factor yes, sir. that was reduced in the budget, right? Yes, sir. It totals about $35 million in fiscal year 15, assuming the private option stays in place. Now, if, if the private option goes away, I assume everyone will want to look at that again because uh, those organizations would be hurt pretty severely, I think, if you if they lose that money and don't have the coverage of their uninsured. By the same token, will they advantage or have an advantage if through the private option and through everybody having insurance, uh, potentially recoup, you know, that reduction in uncompensated care and actually exceed what was reduced or... Yes, sir. I mean, what we have talked about, we tried to be uh, pretty conservative because we obviously didn't want... Those are our critical organizations. You know, the mental health centers are the safety net, the community health centers, the UAMS. Uh, so we've tried to be conservative, but you'll recall the discussion from last year that I think we all felt like that's something that as we go along, we should monitor it and determine what the right level of uncompensated care funding is for those organizations. And it may be that uh, mental health centers have a lot of their care covered and don't need as much uncompensated care and UAMS needs more or it could be the opposite. I, I think we'll want to track that as we go and get data from those organizations uh, and, and make adjustments. You all make adjustments as we go along. And that includes when you talk about that subject, is that uh, UAMS's proposal for what I think has been termed poster? I mean, is that a potential area? Yeah. No, so that's, that's, that's totally a completely different. different. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. <clears throat> Thank you. Representative Thompson, you're recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Hang on just a second. Hit, um, say something else, please. Okay. I've got a green light flash. Let's uh, try to hit your request button again, please. Okay. Try Thank you, on. sir. Thank you. Dr. Allison, do we have any feedback from pharmacies on how patients are using the private option to to access their meds. I just left a pharmacy in Moralton where the pharmacist reported to me that we had a free clinic there that had to close. And several of those patients now are able to come to the pharmacy and access their meds that they've not ever been able to do before. Are we keeping any records of that? Or are we going to have any of that? We, we will keep records in, in two places. One, uh, Dr. Thompson has already referred to, and those are the individuals not medically frail or not determined medically frail uh, and who are enrolled in the private uh, health plans, and they are to collect that information, all the claims data that's coming in from the pharmacies, and the first scheduled receipt of, of a complete year's worth of data would be uh, next spring when they have that information. In the meantime, claims are already coming in uh, to the MMIS, to our system, 
for those who are in the enrollment process or who are medically frail. And uh, in the very first weeks, clearly pharmacy has, has been uh, the, the very first use for, for many individuals. That's, that's already uh, apparent. Uh, and uh, you know a, a very clear indication of the access needs that those those individuals had. You might imagine hospitals don't usually get their claims to us quite that quickly. So we we saw the pharmacy claims hit just as soon as we pulled the data. Well, uh, she made a, a very strong comment about how it was really something that was benefiting not only those patients but our entire area. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Representative Douglas, you're recognized for a question. Maybe did it's you, Elliot. Over did here. you have a question? Did you have your button hit, Representative Douglas? Okay. Who's in? Um, it's Elliot. Right oh, here. Senator Elliot. Okay. Yes. That's right. You're recognized for a question. Oh, thank you. <coughs> uh, Mr. Seelig, I think you or Dr. An um, Allison won. I wanted to get a clarification about um, the method of payment from the federal government, um, when you said there's, you just draw from a pile of money or however you said it, it's there. Uh, is this normal, isn't this normal operating procedure when you have any kind of federal program, you, you request the money, they make it available, then you, the terminology I think is draw it down to, for that, payment? That, that's right. We, we give them an estimate of how much we're going to need for uh -huh. any number of programs. <laughs> They, in effect, set that aside. As Dr. Allison said, they don't let us draw it early and then mm -hmm. have the state drawing just when they could be drawing, you know. But we then draw it as necessary, and, of course, we reconcile and keep. They do very close record keeping to make sure we don't draw any more than necessary, but it's, it is standard procedure. And so you will know, based on the numbers you're getting, what to request for each payment, and then they just go from there. Yes, ma'am. That will happen for each payment. It won't be the same thing necessarily every time, will it? That, that's right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Representative Bell, you're recognized for a question. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I appreciate Guys, I'm over here. <laughs> um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to ask a question. Um, I've been... Uh, listening to some of the discussion today, and something came to my mind that uh, I'm hoping you can address for me. Um, also, over the last few days, I had an ER doc friend um, contact me with similar concerns regarding the ER utilization rate and the, and the spike in it. And um, I know you've indicated that you believe that hopefully will be temporary, and uh, you know that we can do do some education to move away from it. I guess my concern is in the in the, in the interim. And, you know, there are some studies that indicate that, particularly the Oregon study that recently came out, that that utilization rate may not be as temporary as we'd like. Um, with ACA and the private option combination essentially leading to a net cut in uncompensated care payments to hospitals, where does that wind up leaving our hospitals at the end analysis of this? Clearly, um, we wind up with a lot of these folks not having coverage for some of those ER visits. They're going to be billed by the provider. They're probably not going to pay. Um, yet the uncompensated care payments in large part aren't there, as I understand it anymore. And I'm just curious if you all could fill me in on kind of what the feedback you're getting from providers on that is and if I have a correct understanding of the situation. 
Uh, let me say, I haven't had a lot of feedback yet from providers. I had, I had some uh, uh, anxiety from uh, an ER or two prior to implementation. Uh, but I'll be honest, I think that more of the anxiety for them came from the proposal that we have and now the, the, the plan that you all have, have reviewed and that's now in effect, the patient-centered medical home, which is designed in part to divert care to the appropriate source. Really what I heard was more concern from ERs that that would divert business away from that ER. Uh, and I, I was sort of nonplussed. I wasn't exactly sure how to respond to that because it sounded to me like they were saying, what if it works and they don't get the patients coming in the door at the ER? I have not yet had the, which, which we may soon, and it may be that it just hasn't filtered up to me yet, uh, you know, the concern that they're being um, uh, overused. I, I would add that both Medicaid uh, does not pay f sort of full price for a non-emergent use of the emergency room. The, the private sector, the private insurance companies, including for, for the private option, they don't pay at all. So non-emergent use of the ER is not actually a benefit under the private option. So if there is um, additional use, what we ought to see, if it's paid for, it, we're really paying for appropriate use of the ER, the combination of these two policies is the goal here, that, that we not reward um, uh, non-emergent use of the ER, and that at the same time, which we are doing, we are establishing a system of appropriate payment and compensation for primary care, including after-hours care, weekend, phone, et cetera, so that there's an alternative. And in between those, I'm confident it will take a great deal of education to, uh, to really transform use. I think the only two things I would add, and, and this goes to Representative's comments earlier, we had people believing you would have a massive run on hospitalizations or ERs. We, I think the place we did see early use is in the pharmacy area where people already had a prescription that they knew they hadn't been filling, and so they hit the pharmacy early. I think that's what we're kind of report from the field. Uh, I think from the ERs, we are, you know, the education piece on how to use the ER is one piece. There's another piece where we have people who think they're covered just because Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, and they haven't necessarily gone down the path. So some of that engagement is also going on in our emergency rooms as a first point of contact. Mr. Chair, might I, might I follow up quickly? I think, Dr. Thompson, you touched on exactly what, um, and, and in my conversation with an ER doc friend specifically, he has seen about a 500% increase in his ER, and, I, and I'd like to actually put the two of you all in contact and have that discussion, because what he said is the people who are coming in to see him are, and it's a small rural ER, um, that they are coming in with long-term care problems and walking into his ER and saying, now I have coverage, um, I'm here to get treated. And, you know, clearly there are, those are some things we can address through education, but in the short term, and I don't think any of you directly addressed the key point of my question, which is in the short term, these hospitals are seeing these people. They do have some level of cost. He said roughly he thinks his costs are about $200 a patient that he's, uh, that he's having to see essentially with no means of compensation given the situation that we're now in. And I guess that's, that's the question that I'm, that I'm looking at is 
Have you received feedback on that? You indicate that you haven't, but I have. So, you know, I think it's, you're going to hear some more of that type of thing. And is there any contingency in place to address that? If you got, if you could go there a little bit for me, I'd be glad to to connect. And I do think you make an important point. I think the rural parts of the state, where you'll recall we had much higher rates of the uninsured, where we have people that are getting insured, and you're seeing that on some of the reported county numbers now, those people have some pent up need that they are trying to go get access. And the point that they've always gone is the emergency room. So what I have advised our, our, through the hospital association, you know, have hospitals look at the last two or three years of uncompensated, uninsured people that they've had to care for, reach out and try to get them connected to a primary care provider before they hit that emergency room. But this is going to be a massive set of issues, and I'd be glad to follow up with your local provider. I appreciate it very much, and thank you, Mr. Chair. appreciate the opportunity to question. Mm, thank you. Uh, Senator Bledsoe, you had a question. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. On you know, the same line about uncompensated care. Uh, hasn't the dish payment been postponed, uh, rather the repeal of the dish payment been postponed for a while, Dr. Thompson, so that hospitals that uh, have the financial responsibility of the emergency rooms, uh, they're not only getting the dish payment, but they're also getting uh, payment from insurance companies when these people go and, and have insurance. Is that not correct? I think, uh, uh, Andy, Dr. Allison and I were just conversing. I mean, there are two dish payments. One's Medicare, one's Medicaid. I think the the cuts in the dish payments have been deferred for a year. That's right. Uh, so right now we have a chance to work out all the the kinks and people going to the emergency room as they have customarily been. That's what you're saying, is it not? The education of that would keep them from uh, going first to the emergency room. That is clearly, if it's not an emergency, the emergency room is the worst place for you to go, both in terms of cost and in terms of outcomes. I mean, our emergency room docs are stretched, and that's not where you want to go for chronic long-term care management of, a, of a diabetes or something else. You want, you want that with somebody who's got a team working on it, which is what our patient center medical home is putting in place. Actually, an overwhelming, um, uh, I don't know, y'all have reported on that before, but the, the uptake of our primary care providers in the new patient center medical home and in the upcoming uh, um, uh, uh, contract for the primary care case management, there's a lot of demand by the primary care docs because they see the need and they see the opportunity. Uh, the repeal may be one of those also that, uh, you know, uh, we may do away with and, or again, it may, may continue. So, uh, with all the changes in what we're seeing, I, I think it's anyone's guess whether whether that's true or not. Would you not agree? I would. I think there's uncertainty in the future. The thing that I have absolutely no uncertainty about is that the old system was not working and was not stable and was not going to still be here. So we can repeal, modify. We're going to for the Affordable Care Act for decades to come. We'll see with your decision on the private option to come. Uh, but the old healthcare system was not stable. We got into this. Actually, I would remind folks, we started payment improvement before the Affordable Care Act. And I think one of the things that this state has done right is it's dealt with cost containment first before we did insurance expansion second. The rest of the nation has dealt with the latter, but they still haven't dealt with the former. We can discuss that later because I have some issues with the... Uh uh, payment initiative, payment improvement initiative, because uh, those that you say have uh, charged more or done more to get more, to get uh, a greater uh, 
to grow the, the money that's involved in, in the care are still in the system. And under the uh, payment improvement uh, initiative, it looks to me like with the way it's set up, those who would do more to earn more would also do less to earn more under the savings. So we can discuss that later, but that is something that I am concerned about. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we do have a couple more questions. I wanted to ask while we're just on the topic about what the carriers are doing um, to um, dissuade ER overutilization. Uh, I've heard anecdotally just about some of their plans on education to the people that enrolled with them. Do you all know anything about what they're doing? I don't have specific knowledge of that, um, in, in part by design. If this were, a, for example, a Medicaid program, uh, it probably wouldn't just be knowledge. It would be contractual obligation by the insurance companies in, through managed care, for example. Uh, I did uh, meet with a, an insurance company today at length and know that they are already engaged, at least some, in the process of finding individuals who need additional case management uh, the topic specifically of ER overuse didn't come up, so I, I wouldn't but speak to that. General overall utilization. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so they're they're looking at that. At least some are. I know, uh, and um, and in fact, uh, uh, I know that uh, that uh, Arkansas Blue Cross is hiring and has hired uh, case managers uh, for that purpose, and and uh, already beginning to identify patients who uh, covered covered lives, patients uh, who, who uh, would benefit from that reach out. I would just add, from, I mean, from a carrier's perspective as from Medicaid's perspective, if it's not an emergency room, if it's not an emergency, true emergency, the emergency room is the last place you want somebody to show up for care. And so the carriers have a, a built-in incentive and actually different me mechanisms than Medicaid has that we're taking advantage of through the private option to try to reroute people from the emergency room when it's not an emergency to, uh, to a more appropriate source. Yeah, and I guess that's my point because, I mean, regardless, I think a benefit of the private option is just that the state's not in the in the business of trying to manage these costs. You've got carriers. Whether you love them, hate them, think they're greedy little whatevers, at the end of the day, they've got a huge incentive to uh, make sure that, you know, people are doing the right thing. Um, and so I, I, I'll be curious to get to get an update from them on how they're trying to manage the utilization and the cost. Um, okay, Representative Hutchison, you're recognized for a question. Am I on? Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chair. You know, it's curious that you, you, you know, you guys know that I'm for reform and I'm for doing the right thing. And one comment on, on what you were talking about on the, on, on the, uh, emergency room, I had a, person this last week that came down duck hunting from Illinois with me and lo and behold they were work for this hospital to uh, work on uh, emergency room care okay and they one simple thing they done was they became creative okay they put a small fee assist to those coming in for to the emergency room, and they said, "Lo and behold, how much it dropped! It was incredible." Okay, just from a low fee. Okay, be creative. That's what we got to do. But one, my question is, is to all y'all, 
One thing that concerns me too is has our state done enough on its tax laws to maybe compensate for what the federal government is assessing to us all? We're, you know, Arkansas, we're, we're, all, we're all Americans, right? And this Affordable Care Act has created 18 new tax laws and uh, added 47 separate tax provisions, allowing the IRS in the next 10 years to collect $1 trillion to pay for this. Have we as a state done enough on our tax laws to maybe help compensate for this, you think? I think, Representative Hutchinson, we'd probably have to defer to Department of Finance Administration. I, my guess is we can't do a lot at the state level to change those federal tax laws. But one of the implications is that we've talked about, at least when we think about the private option, is I mean the, the taxes that they're collecting up there to pay for Medicaid expansion around the country, we're going to be paying whether we have the private option or not. Uh, it's going to be a transfer of income from here to other states. Uh, wh whether whether we like it or not, uh, the private option gives us an opportunity to at least use those funds for what I would say you all have put in place is a, is a conservative private market approach to make good use of those funds to give people coverage who didn't have it otherwise. Okay, that's a good answer. But I guess I guess what I'm saying, it <laughs> Thank might, you. I, that's a good answer. Okay, I'm happy with it. <laughs> but, uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is it wouldn't hurt for somebody to come in here and maybe see if there's any kind of tax provisions we could do, right? Correct? You agree? I, I agree, but again, I would defer to the Department of Finance Administration. Okay. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Um, four more questions. Um, Representative Ballinger, you're recognized for a question. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, my question, just a follow-up of a uh, discussion that we had um, last Thursday, I just wanted to see if you were able to get some of the information, just basically two things. Um, one question is on the Medicaid recapture, you know, the, the issue that it, the services provided to Medicaid where they could actually put a, a lien on people's property or, or you know, basically um, take the property in order to, to recapture funding on that. It, what, uh, where are we at on that? I, I know that you guys didn't know. And then the, the second thing is on the issue of the inconsistencies with the terms and condition on the waiver approval. I know both those things were things that you were going to look at and you were going to talk to us about it. You might imagine that we have spent a fair amount of uh, time and effort uh, focused on the latter uh, and okay. the, the tremendous uh, uh, questions that came to us last week. Uh, I do not have an answer uh, firm and fixed answer to you on your first question. It is it is one that we're working on uh, um, among among others, and we will get an answer to you about the uh, uh, the asset uh, recovery, et cetera, for those that are over 55, and whether the private option uh, has any impact uh, on on that or incurs any liability for potential liability for uh, those over 55. Uh, to the second question, yes. Uh, I don't know, Director Seeley, if you want to refer to the forthcoming hearing. Well, yeah, I'd just say we have, apparently a hearing has been scheduled of this committee for the 4th uh, to talk about that specifically. But, okay. but we have, I mean, we have looked at it. We feel very confident that we can get out of the program. A legislative staff, I believe, is also looking into it. They've come to talk with us, and I think they may be preparing a report for the 4th. 
Uh, so we can we can talk about it now, or we can wait till then. Well, if we're, it, I mean, I, from my perspective, you're addressing it on the fourth, and I don't necessarily think we need to talk about it now. But I did just want to make sure that that is being being addressed. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, Representative Ballinger, we are having a meeting on the fourth. Um, BLR Matt Miller was asked to uh, prepare an analysis, um, you know, an, an independent analysis for um, for those terms and conditions and what BLR or how BLR interprets them, and then I think the department will have some as well. Okay. Thank you very much. And even just because it, I will just go ahead and say, because after the meeting, it's certainly been a topic of discussion. I mean, I've reviewed it, and I, I don't – I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I don't think there's an issue at all. Um, I don't – and I think that's what we'll hear on the 4th. So there's my flag in the in the ground, I guess. But um, I, I think that's going to be what you hear. I'll be real interested in hear your analysis, Chairman. Representative Ballinger, if I can. Well, our, I've our spoken chief, to several attorneys. Yeah. Our, our, our chief attorney, Brad Hopkins, tells me that he has been able to look at the asset recovery, and there is no asset recovery through the private option. Is, is that by virtue of the waiver? I'm going to let him speak yeah, to that, okay. so, if that's but, all right. Yeah, and let me just close it off. So the fourth, sure. we'll get the analysis from BLR. Okay. 